we, we studied simplicity for a couple weeks before, um, uh, before the solitude study. And so um, just to recap, to dive back in, get everyone back on the same page, what have we learned um, regarding the outward discipline of simplicity, just, just in recapping? It's a broad question that allows you to throw out really anything regarding simplicity. Yeah, yeah, seeking um, God's kingdom while holding loosely to the things of earth. What are some other things we learned about simplicity? What were some verses that spoke to how we regard things and stuff, belongings? It all belongs to God. That's a huge detail. Yes, God made man upright, and we chased after many schemes. The first people to chase after a scheme and quit seeking God's kingdom first were Adam and Eve in the garden. They were the first, that was the first scheme of many that were sought after by people who were created in an upright and a simple manner from Ecclesiastes 7.29. Uh, if someone steals from us, what are we supposed to do? What would you say? Throw down? let them have it, get our stuff back. Right. That's exactly what we learned. We went over that in detail, how to um, uh, render someone helpless while getting your stuff back from them. Um, yeah, I, I think maybe what you meant, what? Yes, yes. Maybe what we meant was give them your cloak as well. They steal something, you give them more. That's the biblical attitude. And that's very uncult- anti-cultural, uncultural, not whatever. That's not the norm for us. If someone steals our stuff, I don't, I don't know many people whose natural response is, I need to give them more of my stuff that they stole. Um, if, if someone um, begs, what are we supposed to do? If someone asks of something, you give it to them. So if they steal it, you give it to them. If they ask for it, you give it to them. Um, but, but, but what right do you have to your stuff as a Christian? What, what? Yeah, really, not, not, not much. That's, that's kind of what we've landed on is is God is calling us in simplicity to this carefree unconcern for possessions. He doesn't want you to be ruled by possessions, but, but what he wants you to know is that he intends for his children to have adequate provision. He just doesn't intend for his children to make a life out of provision. Does that make sense? He's gonna, he says, look at the birds, look at the lilies. They have everything they need, and I want you to know that I'll give you everything you need. But I've, his plan was never for us to make a life out of, um, out of possessions, out of um, provision. And so making a life out of provision would look like a person who wakes up thinking about what they need, goes to work to work for it, comes back, um, gets, earns money, buys what they want, repeat cycle. And it's not abnormal. I mean, when I say that, it, none of us are like, well, that's bizarre. I've never heard of such a notion, going and working, earning money, buying stuff, repeating cycle. A lot of us do that. And what he's saying is we should have a carefree and concern for possessions because we are so concerned with what? Seeking what first? The kingdom, yeah. The question that I had was what pursuit must remain central as one endeavors to live a life of worshipful simplicity? 
and it's seeking first the kingdom. Just as soon as you stop seeking the kingdom and you seek simplicity, you misunderstand simplicity and lose it altogether. You have to seek first the kingdom. And part of seeking first the kingdom is trusting God's provision and not being anxious about your things. So there are three details that keep us from being anxious in regard to material things. One is that God gave it to us. Y'all already said that. What was the next one? Yeah, he takes care of what he gives us. He, he, he protects what he gives us. And then what's the third thing? We've already mentioned it. It's not ours. So God's design is that in regards to things, we make it available to others. So because God gives us what we have, because God protects what we have, and because God says that what we have should be available to other people, the result, this plus this plus this, equals no anxiety in regard to stuff. And if you just work backwards or flip it on its head or whatever, you can say, if you think you got it because you earned it and that's it, and you think the only way to keep it is, is to take precautions and protect it, and then you make your stuff unavailable to anybody, you will be filled with anxiety regarding your possessions. And so if we see it in the way that God designed us to see it, it's beautiful because it leads to a total um, carefree, unconcerned for our, our stuff because we're not supposed to be defined by it. Tonight, we're moving to the next outward discipline of solitude. Um, I'll admit, the further we get down this list of biblical disciplines, the more foreign some of them feel. So rather than trying to explain what I mean, let me ask some questions. When I mention solitude as a discipline, what comes to mind? Quiet. Sorry? Meditation? Yeah. Being by yourself, which is awesome. Quiet. Peace. Fly fishing on a river, particularly Beaver's Bend, Rock Face. Sorry, I went to a happy place there. You said fly fishing on a river. I like that. I like fly fishing. I like rivers. I like putting them together. What else? Listening to God. Listening to God. Being content. What are some obvious hurdles to solitude? People, children, mainly children, people, children, people. Um, Life in general, your own brain. Some people love the idea of being alone. Is there anyone in here who hates the idea of being alone? Who doesn't like the quiet that goes with that? Yeah. Yeah, for like just a very short amount of time. And then I feel like I'm genuinely losing my mind every minute thereafter. Sure. Um, there are lots of hurdles to solitude. Is our culture conducive to, to consistent moments of solitude? No. It, what's no, when you go home, I just want you to think about what the dynamics are. Like, like at our house, we have TVs. It seems all over the stinking place. We've got one in the kitchen, one in the living room, one in the bedroom. I hate them all. But yet, they're there, and it seems like they're always on. And if they're not on, then, then the music's on. And if the music, there's always something. And, and solitude, at, in my house... When it gets real quiet for more than about 30 seconds, you know what question we ask? 
What's wrong? Exactly. It's too quiet. What happened? Where are the kids? Something's bound to be on fire or broken or something. What's going on? And then the solitude is almost like an indicator of things not being right. And so um, when, when we talk about solitude, I want, I want you to know we are talking about quiet and silence. Um, the, Richard Foster in his book, he actually almost titled the chapter, The Discipline of Silence and Solitude, because they are so closely linked biblically, which we're going to see here in a couple minutes. So um, there, are, there are many hurdles to solitude, and man, um, honestly, I feel like, I feel like, I mean, I feel like getting to the point of instilling and moving in the discipline of solitude is going to be a significant challenge for everyone sitting here. I've only met a handful of people my whole life who are good at doing this in a disciplined manner. Um, so the idea of solitude is to be proactive in it and not reactive in it. There's a number of people that I know who feel like they go until they can go no more, and then it's like, I have to leave, get the people away from me. I don't want to hear from anybody. We need to go to a foreign country so that we can have some time away from people. And, and there's like this reactive thing. And what we're talking about tonight is not reactive. That's five, five phones in the time of solitude. That's hilarious. I mean, this is, a, this is an indicator of, of, uh, of, of what it is. So I don't want to call anybody out. I didn't mean to embarrass anybody. But I'm just like, seriously, there it is. We're all over. Um, and, uh, and so I'm, I'm wanting us to see this as, a, as a, a thing we're supposed to be proactive about. We're supposed to plan ahead about. So turn to Matthew 4. I want us to look particularly first at the Gospels. And my hope in this is clarity from Jesus about his view on solitude, because if our goal is transformation, it's not just random transformation, it's transformation to being more Christ-like. And so I want to know Christ's view on solitude. So Matthew 4, um, I'm going to read verses 1 through 11. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Most obvious verse in scripture. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Jesus inaugurated his ministry with 40 days of solitude in the desert. And that's significant for us who are trying to understand the significance of solitude. 40 days of solitude in the desert. Just in these short few verses, what was the result of his time in solitude? Strong enough to resist temptation. What else? The devil left him. The devil couldn't prevail. What? 
Yeah. He was aware of what the scripture was and he was aware of when it needed to be said and aware of how it needed to be said. What else? Clear-minded. Yeah. I wrote down clear mind, ability to resist temptation, and readiness to battle Satan. Those are three things that happened when Jesus inaugurated his earthly ministry by spending 40 days in solitude. So, I I think we're all very clear that Jesus is far more able and far stronger, far more equipped, far more ready for any kind of battle with, with the enemy than we could ever be. Yet part of his readying for that was solitude. And at the very least, just in this very first verse we're going to look at, and we're going to look at more, we can say that we would be foolish to think we could move in a more healthy manner than him or in a more fruitful manner than him without any solitude. Um, I, I feel like, well, I'm not going to say, what, say that yet. Turn to Luke 6. Yes. Um, readiness to battle Satan. Luke 6. I want you all to see that the solitude that Jesus sought there didn't stop there. Um, In um, Luke 6, verse 12, it says this. In these days, he, Jesus, went out to the mountain to pray. And all night he continued prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them 12. What I want us to see here is first Jesus inaugurated his ministry with 40 days of solitude. And here Jesus spent time in solitude before choosing the 12, a night in prayer, particularly alone with God. So what did he give up for solitude? Sleep. Uh-oh is right, yeah. Uh-oh is right. Yeah, I, I have a terrible tendency when my children wake me up in the middle of the night, I just wake up angry. I'm just like, I, I, I have to really reel it in because it's like, Dad, I'm throwing up. I'm like, what? And that's just my response. It's how I come out of bed. I, it's like, if it's the middle of the night, I'm angry. And, and part of that is because I have to work hard not to make an idol out of sleep. I know how terrible and rough the next day is going to be if I don't have good sleep. I know the importance of good sleep. I have been recently convinced of the importance of buying a good mattress because you spend a third of your life in that mattress or on that mattress. Um, there, uh, there's a good sleep's good. There's nothing wrong with sleep, but don't make an idol out of sleep because if you make an idol out of it, there's a potential that here you may not be willing to give up sleep for the sake of having solitude because that's what that's what Jesus did here. And what did he do in solitude? Just to be clear, he prayed. Turn to Matthew 14. So he inaugurated his ministry, 40 days of solitude. Before he chose the 12, he spent a night in solitude by himself, praying to the Lord. And here in Matthew 14, verse 13... Immediately following the death of John the Baptist, who we know was dear to Jesus, it says this. Now, when Jesus heard this about John the Baptist dying, when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. What do you think the purpose of that time in the desolate place is? 
he's going to do? Pray. What else might he do? Meditate, grieve, mourn, gather himself, maybe reflect on the life of John the Baptist. So here, one of the things that he does in solitude is reflect on the life of one who has passed and potentially mourn and grieve. Okay? Turn to Mark 1. Later on in Matthew, as you're turning there, later on in Matthew 14, Jesus actually retreats in solitude after feeding the 5,000. So we see this. He, he does a lot of ministry. He does a significant outpouring. He blesses many, and then he retreats to a place of solitude. And then look at Mark 1. Verse 35. Jesus at this point has healed many. You can read the little subtitles kind of leading up to this moment. That he's baptized, he's tempted, he begins his ministry, he calls the first disciples, he heals a man with an unclean spirit, he heals many, and then in 135 it says, And rising early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. After a long night of ministry, Jesus rose when? Very early. I don't much like that either. Very early rising. He rose very early to go to a desolate place to pray. Okay, so just as we're going down this list, be, you know, gathering all these clues, and we'll bring a conclusion to it in a minute. Turn just a few pages over to Mark 6. So, maybe, maybe this is just something that Jesus needed to do because of the weight of the ministry that he was doing, right? Maybe we could say, okay, we saw Jesus do that, we saw Jesus do that, Jesus did this, this desolate place with Jesus here, a lot of ministry Jesus did here, Jesus stayed up late, Jesus got up early, but look at Mark six thirty one. Jesus fed the 5,000. The apostles, look at verse 30, and we'll get into 31. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. So Jesus feeds the 5,000. The apostles return. They're telling Jesus, we did this, we did that, we did this, we did that. It's sort of like a recap at the end of an exciting day of ministry, an exciting day of engaging other people and serving other people, and they're sharing with Jesus the way that they served him by serving others. And it's just, I would imagine this would have been a sweet moment. And it, it gets a little sweeter, in my opinion, because Jesus says, he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place, and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. So here there's a shift that we see where Jesus sets this example by going to a desolate place, and then he says, come away by yourselves to a desolate place. I actually want to have a plaque made or something out of wood or something, I'm not sure what, um, for the Cardwell's Lake House. And I want to put it right above the door. Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest yourselves a while. Because I've gone to the Cardwell's Lake House a number of times over the years to do just that. But here Jesus is caring for those who are serving in ministry by telling them they need some solitude. By yourself. You guys, by yourself. Get away from everybody for a, for a time. By yourself. So, Jesus encourages us towards solitude. 
So what are some repeated themes we learn about Jesus and how he sought solitude? Well, we see Jesus seeking solitude in preparation of ministry. Jesus seeking solitude in preparation of upcoming opportunities. We see Jesus seeking solitude after serving others. The solitude that he finds is often early in the morning or late at night. And I think that's going to be convicting for some of us. Because all those people and all those children that are the big hurdles for solitude are less of a hurdle when they're asleep. Just, just logic. I don't think that's all that deeply profound. When people are sleeping, they will, they will not call you as much. And they will not want to have conversations. And those are times, late at night and early in the morning, where we can utilize that time for solitude. But a lot of us utilize that time to watch TV or set our minds on something that we can not have to think about anything. And so we see it early, we see it late. It's not usually in the middle of the day. Not usually. And it's a desolate place in many times. So I want us to see that location can play a factor, yet it doesn't always play a factor. Location, sometimes it's good. Sometimes it is good to leave town, go to the Cardwell Lake House, go to Beaver's Bend and get your fly rod and put your waders on and stand in the middle of the river and not fish for about 15 minutes, just sit there and then start fishing. It's so good. Um, I, I have always wished that God called me to a fly fishing ministry and he never, he never has. But, um, but I, would, I would heed that call. Um, um, but location's not always the factor. When we're talking about solitude, I don't want you to think it's limited to a place because it's not. When we discuss solitude, we're speaking of moments of inward silence. Moments of inward silence. If you're writing notes, write moments of inward silence. Sometimes this inward silence happens in a place of outward silence. And sometimes this inward silence takes place in the middle of turmoil and activity and children fighting and people demanding things of you. Sometimes it takes place in the midst of the most chaos you've ever experienced, in times of uncertainty, in times where you would be more inclined to be anxious and fearful and frustrated. Turn to Isaiah 50. I want us to see that this is in fact a possibility because you may be thinking, well, uh, sounds like a good idea, but I'm not sure how to reach the inward silence when all the crazy people are around me. And um, I want us to see in 50 verse 10, it's a really interesting verse. And it says, Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his, of his servant? And you may think, I know what he's going to say next. You fear the Lord and you obey his servant, God's going to make everything all right. And that's not what happens here. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? Let him who walks in darkness and has no light Trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. I'm going to read that again, and I want you all to really think about what it means. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. What is going on? while this person listens to and walks closely with God. What is the situation? How is it described? 
It's dark. Some people struggle with thinking, if I'm a Christian, I shouldn't have to walk in darkness. We walk in the light, right? There are times where it's darkness. There are times where it feels like there is no light. There's times in Psalms and other places where God will hide his face from his children for a season to teach them something. Hide his face. There are times known as the dark night of the soul where God will bring you very low and put you through a hard season. And what I want us to see here, well, first, what are some things that are indicative of darkness? Sin? What? Stumbling around? Fear? Hopelessness? Helplessness? Distant? Unknown? Lack of light and brightness? Yep. I want us to see here the connection to this verse in trust. God is saying, you can have inner quiet in times where there's a lot of confusion and turmoil and uncertainty and darkness and who knows what the heck is going to happen in the next hour. Who knows what the doctor's report is going to be. Who knows how this marriage is going to turn out. Who knows if my child is going to make the right decision. Who knows all these different things that we can worry about and be anxious about. And sometimes there's darkness. Sometimes there's turmoil. Sometimes it's just a season where you have to wait. Sometimes for us, waiting is the hardest thing in the world to do because we want to know right now what it is that I want to know right now. And I don't want to wait. I don't want to wait on God's timing. I want God to know what my timing is and do what I want to do when I want to do it. And that darkness is a time where we should have a deep trust in God that results in an inner quietness that is solitude. And it's not easy. This, this kind of stuff is, I mean, this, it's a discipline for sure because it's going to take time to have that kind of movement with your Lord and that kind of trust. Foster notes that inner silence is intimately related with trust. Turn over to Psalm 62. Psalm 62 is dear to me because it reminds me that I have the ability in Christ to do something that I don't always remember I'm able to do in the moment that I need to do it. So that was probably not clear at all, so let's read the verse and see if we can clarify it. Psalm 62, 1 through 8 says this, For God alone my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress I shall not be greatly shaken. How long will all of you attack a man to batter him like a leaning wall and a tottering fence? They only plan to thrust him down from his high position. They take pleasure in falsehood. They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. The psalmist is troubled by what he's seeing around him. He's troubled by being surrounded by people who just want to see him fail. He's troubled by being surrounded by people who are insincere with their mouths because they say one thing, but man, they do a wicked other thing. And he goes on to say in verse 5, For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence. For my hope is from him. He alone, he only, is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory. My mighty rock, my refuge is God. 
Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge to us. In a book called The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment, which has been a very significant book in my life because I struggle with this contentment, and I believe that contentment is indeed a rare jewel, um, Jeremiah Burroughs explains the soul as having this inner voice that only God can hear. So when we're talking about inner quiet or the opposite of inner quiet, inner raging and inner turmoil and inner franticness, he says that there's this inner voice that our souls have that only God can hear. And what he does is he says, a lot, it's like a shoe, he compares it to a nice shiny leather shoe where on the outside it looks right, but on the inside it pinches the flesh, is what he compares it to. And he goes on to say, does the Lord, when he hears that voice of your soul that only the Lord alone can hear, does he hear vexing and fretting or worship and contentment? And what I want you to see in Psalm 62 is that part of the purpose of solitude is to actively quiet your soul. Sometimes, uh, I think many of us go far too long with disquieted souls because we don't go to the, to the solitude and actively work to quiet our souls. And when I say actively work, I mean, look at, look at what it says in verse 5. For God alone, oh my soul, wait in silence. It's almost this command to your own soul. Wait in silence. I know you want to boil over. I know you want to get angry. I know you want to share all of your feelings with whoever will, will sit and listen to them. I know you want to get, you know, to, to put words to what you're feeling. I know you want to just get things right. I know you want to move and kick down doors that maybe God hasn't opened. But he's saying, Psalm 62 means you can actually counsel your own soul towards inner silence and inner quiet. You can counsel your own soul. It's often in the moments of a disquieted soul that we think our souls can't be quieted, much less could we quiet it ourselves. We're like, man, I need to call someone. I need to help. And it's okay to do that. But what I want us to know that God has given us one another to help each other through trials. He's also given us the ability to have solitude with him. A solitude in which we can, in fact, speak to our own souls to be quiet, to calm, and to listen to what God has to say, to literally counsel your own soul toward inner silence because of deep trust in God. Sometimes when, you, when someone does something and you, and you think, whoa, I, can I trust them? You kind of have to counsel yourself say, well, no, no, I can trust them. That person's trustworthy. That person has a track record that is proven. So you have to kind of counsel in moments where you're wondering about trust. And with the Lord, none of us have any moments that we can look back on and say, God failed. He dropped the ball on that one. It may feel that way sometimes, but it is never a reality. So we can counsel our souls toward, inner, inner silent, toward inward silence because of our deep trust in God. Foster, in his book, says this. The disciplined person is the person who can do what needs to be done when it needs to be done. The disciplined person is the person who can do what needs to be done when it needs to be done. Now, some people think the disciplined person is the person who can do everything. Man, those disciplined people, they get it all done, all the time. And that is not a biblical version of discipline. And if you put those kind of demands on yourself, which I know a bunch of people in this room who do, so I'm going to look at the back wall so I don't make eye contact with anybody... 
But there is a reality that we think, man, if we're disciplined, we can do it all. We can get it all done. We can cover this. We can cover that. We can knock this out. I can be the best parent, the best spouse, um, the best friend, the best servant, the best greeter, the best nurse. Man, we can just pile it on and pile it on. But the reality is the disciplined person knows there is a time to get things done. And the disciplined person is the one who can get done what needs to be done when it needs to be done. So why does that matter when we're talking about solitude? I think it's important to remember this because this reminds us of the importance of priorities. When we're talking about discipline, in large part we're talking about priorities, right? If someone says, I'll do that when time allows. What they've just said is if something happens that will absolutely never happen and I get everything done early and God actually provides me with more time than I ever needed, in that moment, this thing that I haven't even put onto my list of priorities, I will go ahead and do it in that moment. Do you see what I'm saying? Like, I'll do that if time allows. That says I'm not going to prioritize it and if time allows, I'll get to it. Never. That's what you're saying. You're saying that's not really a priority. When we're talking about the disciplines, we're talking about priorities. Not only are there things that need to get done, but those things need to get done at particular times. Not everything needs to get done right now. I want some of y'all to take a deep breath and exhale, because not everything needs to get done right this blessed second. Sit with it for a minute. Not only are there things that need to get done, but they need to get done at particular times. And what we need to know about time is time is something that you cannot add to or take away from. When we pray that God would multiply our time, it's a silly prayer. God, multiply how effective I am with the use of time. God, make us better stewards of time. But to say, God, would you magically add two hours to the 24-hour day that has always existed from the is silly. We don't add to time. I wish I had more time. And on the other side, when we say, I just don't have enough time for that, that's not true. You're just saying that thing that you're talking about is not a priority to me, so I'm not going to put it on my list of priorities that can only be executed within the time that God created. It's a created thing. So each of us is aware of what needs to be done at work regarding our children, regarding maintenance of our homes, maintenance of our cars. But what, what I want us to see right here is we can't forget that sometimes the priority needs to be solitude and silence. It wasn't on my to-do list when I got up this morning. I've got a big to-do list. I've, I'm able to put it in Evernote now and actually click it and check them off and mark them off of my other list. It, it's, like two it's like I'm getting two things done when it's only one. It's wonderful. But on that list was not solitude. What we're seeing here is the disciplined person is the person who can do what needs to be done when it needs to be done, and sometimes the thing that needs to be done is solitude and silence, and I think a lot of us don't have any room for it in our schedules. We don't have any plan for it within the next week. We don't have any, any, any initiative to make that happen, because a lot of us, I think, just either we see it as a waste of time because we don't understand what it's for, or we just see it as a... Uh, an urban myth or, you know, a fable that's not possible because you're so important. So, while this is not very cultural, I want us to know that it's very biblical. 
moments of silence and solitude. And I want to explain the difference between the church I grew up in and the church that I currently pastor. The church I grew up in was a church that had a very heavy emphasis on the Jesus and me kind of language. Essentially, being a part of a church family and taking part in corporate worship was not nearly as stressed as making sure you had your quiet time. That was the kind of the church I grew up in. It'd be like, if you're seeing how someone's doing, and they feel far away from Jesus, rather than inviting them into the community of faith and saying, there are a people that you are a part of, and they're all moving toward the same goal for all of eternity, and for all of eternity, we're all going to be together, so let's start now and continue forever, and there's refreshing and enjoyment and encouragement in community. Rather than that, in the church I grew up in, it was, you don't feel close to God? How's your quiet time? How's your quiet time? Did you have a quiet time this morning? You didn't, did you? I can see it in your face. You didn't have a quiet time this morning. When's the last time you did a quiet time? Was it this week? And like everything was gauged on this quiet time. And there was a lingo within the church that I actually heard from the pulpit of sort of this Jesus and me reality of referring to God as like the big man upstairs and he's always there for me. And the content of the preaching was he's there for you. He's here for you and you and you and you and you. And it was very individualistic. There wasn't a real encouragement to be a part of community. There was a much bigger encouragement to have a quiet time. The church I pastor now, we've been in John and Hebrews. Parachoresis and let us, 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 we, 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 us, us, us. And here's what I think. The church I grew up in, my concern that I didn't have then, but that I do have now looking back on it, is that people don't properly value community because they're so worried about their solitude. They didn't properly value community because all they really needed to be good with God was a quiet time that was solid, a dang good devotional. Honestly, here, I think there's an imbalance in the other direction. Here at Crosspoint, I think that we rightly value community. What I'm, what I'm saying here is not diminishing anything we've heard from the book of John, anything we've heard from Hebrews. Community is massively important. If you think you cannot be a part of it, you are a fool and you do not understand God's calling on your life. So my goal is not to diminish the importance of community. What I think is I want to bump up the importance of solitude because I think in large part, this body of believers highly values community and no one has, few have time for solitude and quiet aloneness with God. Few plan to facilitate and foster the discipline of inner quietness. I, I don't have a concern when I look at this body of people who are largely disengaged and not a part of community. When I look at this body, I see people who are hugely involved in community people who are serving in a number of different capacities, and people who always talk about how busy it is, and it seems like there is not a moment of inner silence and solitude that they have throughout the course of the day. They wake up in go mode, and they go to sleep in go mode. So Bonhoeffer has a quote that says, let him who cannot be alone beware of community. 
let him who cannot be alone beware of community. And let him who is not in community beware of being alone. Each by itself has profound pitfalls and perils. One who wants to fellowship without solitude plunges into the void of words and feelings. One who wants fellowship without solitude plunges into the void of words and feelings. And one who seeks solitude without fellowship perishes in the abyss of vanity, self-infatuation, and despair. What that means Okay, well, did God create us for community or did God create us for solitude? Yes, he created you for both. He created you first. He created you to need both, to flourish by having both in an abundant amount, in an abundant measure. Because if you think that you can be in community um, and not have any solitude, your time in community will be words and feelings. It'll be lots of talky talk, 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 talk. There's a piece of scripture that talks about all they did was sit around and talk about something new all the time. They just discussed things, words and feelings. How do you feel about this? What do you feel about this? Well, I feel about this. Ooh, I like this. Frankly, it's, it, it sounds weird, but if you really personalize it, it's just a bunch of people who get together and talk about current events, talk about the news, talk about what they read on Fox News or Drudge Report or CNN or whatever. And they talk about this new law. Or they talk, all they do is talk, and then they say, well, how do you feel about that? I feel, you know how I feel about it? I feel this way. Feelings, 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 talk, talk, talk. When what needs to happen is everyone needs to shut up and go spend some time alone with God in that moment. Or the moments leading up to it and the moments after it, so that, that time's tempered. The flip side is if you think, you know what, I'm so tired of all these talkers around here. All these people that just chatter and flap their jaws. You know what, I'm going to go to the woods, and I'll be out next year. That's, that's, you know what's going to happen there? You're going to spend all your time focusing on you, 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 you. It's going to be vanity, self-infatuation. You'll probably go some level of crazy because of how inward focused you are. Because the reason that God gives us both community and solitude is because you are supposed to keep a close watch on your own life and you are supposed to be a part of others' lives. You need both. I'm going to be preaching on this again April 26th. Ben and I have talked about the need for a balance here. We had a sweet conversation this afternoon about this because we were like, man, John and Hebrews just is a ton of plural community stuff. And our people are really busy. So I think maybe some cool things would happen if we started spending some more time alone with God. Not in place of community. In addition to your time as a member, an active member of your church family. So... What might be the result of one who is balanced having both community and solitude? Sunday's sermon at the end, um, Ben had a quote that said, the vertical thing and the horizontal thing make up the whole thing. Did y'all hear that? The vertical thing, that's this way, and the horizontal thing, which is this way, make up the whole thing, okay? You cannot have a sufficient... Remember when, um, when Derek preached, talked about breathing in and breathing out. That's what we do. There's things that we do to take in word and truth and, and reality, and there's things we do in breathing out and serving others, engaging others. You cannot have sufficient breathing in or breathing out in vertical movement with God without solitude with God. What that means 
is we with one voice as a community absolutely praise God. We with one voice as a community absolutely sit and listen to God in the preaching, in times like this, in the teaching. But we also individually are supposed to go and praise God for what what he's done, to lift up our voices and tell him how blessed we know we are, to honor him, to exalt him. And there's also times where by ourselves we need to go to God and listen and hear things. Do you see what this means that by God's design, when he says things like, think over what I say and the Lord will give you understanding, that means it's really good to come here and listen to the preaching and teaching of the word. And it's really good to go to life group and talk about that to make sure that you are a hearer of the word and not just a, that you're both a hearer and a doer so that you're not deceived because knowledge can be deceptive. But coming and listening to the sermon and going to life group to talk about it is insufficient. You need to spend some time alone with God regarding those matters as well. You need to spend some time alone with God asking for insight think over what I say and the Lord will give you understanding, that means move backwards. I will not have as much understanding if I don't take any time to think over what God said. And generally, thinking is something that doesn't happen in a group because other people can't think for you. You have to think for yourself and balance that out in community. But there is time that we all need alone with God. When we talk here, you've heard us say, when we get up here to preach on a Sunday, we're not here to give you a devotional, right? Right? We're here to go to the Word, not have a devotional. That does not mean there's something wrong with devotionals. It just means the place for a devotional is not in the pulpit. The place for a devotional is by yourself with God, in your quiet closet, in your desolate place that someone's creating a hole in the wall over there from the outside in. There's, there's a, a, uh, a quietness in a desolate place that you go where you Listen to God and you speak to God. So the purpose of solitude is silence and to be able to see and hear. The goal isn't just to be quiet for a while and see what happens. It's not listen, okay, 30 minutes, I'm going to say nothing, go. The goal in that solitude is seeing and hearing. James 1.9 says, be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Why is quick to hear listed first? Because what you hear will affect what you say. And what you hear will affect how angry you get, quickly or not quickly. My kid could say, Dad, I broke something. I could be, what? You broke something? What did you break? We can't have nice things because that's all you kids do is break something. But if I would zip it and be quick to hear, my kid might say, Dad, I broke something. It was a dish because I was making you breakfast. And then you're like, oh, I'm sorry, I'm a big jerk, and I should have been quicker to hear and slower to speak because I was quick to anger. My bad. You see what I'm saying? Like, that's God's design there is to see and to hear, and solitude helps with that. Proverbs 19.13 says, if one gives an answer before he hears, it is his folly and um, shame. So that's a big part of biblical counseling and conflict reconciliation is listening to people. When you have a problem with someone, it's good to rather than just tell them why they are such losers, rather listen to what's going on. Because biblically, only a fool will begin to try to solve a problem before he fully understands it. So the purpose of solitude is hearing, and then this, just this last part will be done. 
is the fruit of solitude. All this paints this picture for us that by God's design, human beings need times alone. Human beings, by God's design, need solitude and silence so that we can see and hear. Because without seeing and hearing, it's, it's impossible to move in worshipful obedience and insight. The fruit of solitude in closing, as the children bang on the walls with dodgeballs and shoes, is uh, increased sensitivity and compassion for others. Like the children who are banging on the walls. Given how we've defined the purpose, what do you think the fruit of solitude and silence will be? The fruit of solitude is going to be we see things more clearly and we hear things more clearly. And when that happens, we have an increased sensitivity and compassion for others. Maybe we're really short with each other because we're not having any time alone with Jesus. Maybe we can't stand other people most of the time because you don't have any time alone with Jesus. But when you have some time alone with the Lord, you will find an increased sensitivity and compassion for others. And Thomas Merton says, it's in deep solitude that I find the gentleness with which I can truly love my brothers. The more solitary I am, the more affection I have for them. So he's not saying, I like it when they're not around. He's saying, when they're not around, I have a silence with God that helps me when they are around. And I'm anticipating it. I'm looking forward to it. I love community, and I can genuinely cherish community and cherish plural movement and perichoresis and all of the let us's when I have those moments in silence with God and in solitude, quietly listening and personally speaking to God. Solitude and silence teach me to love my brothers for what they are, not just for what they say and do. Let's pray. Lord, um, first I just pray personally you would help me to be more disciplined in this area. Um, Particularly, help us to stop blaming our children for a lack of solitude. Help us to stop blaming our spouse for a lack of solitude. Help us to stop blaming our work for a lack of solitude. Help us to stop blaming other people for the frantic craziness that is our lives sometimes. Rather, Help us to be disciplined people, people who know how to get done what needs to get done when it needs to get done, and help us to realize that sometimes that means solitude. Not all of the time, but sometimes. Lord, we'll be imbalanced in this in as much as we are not in step with the Spirit, so keep us in step with the Spirit. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.